Hi, I'm Cole. And I'm Lily. And this is the Culture Bites Back podcast. Episode 6, The Tutorial Game. Games are hard to teach. They're harder to teach than books. And they're harder to teach than movies because, like books, there are barriers to entry. There are things that you have to learn how to do in order to understand them. And like movies, it's difficult to take notes while you play a game. Um, Games are fast. Moments happen and then pass. It's difficult to sort of turn to a particular moment in a game. And yet, I think my own research in games has compelled me to put them on my syllabi and to try teaching them. But I can't say I'm always successful. Even though I've taught uh, games occasionally, I've avoided teaching anything long or big because I just kind of don't know how to deal with it. And so I wondered, Lily, if you wanted to say a few things about teaching Bioshock, which is something that I couldn't imagine doing. Uh, What compels you to put it on the syllabus? The whole course uh, that I taught this past fall was experimental. Um, The course was officially titled Cult Classics. It's the first time the department had even offered a course like this. So I had... um, a lot of freedom in developing um, the syllabus and in choosing the texts that I ended up with. I saw it as this very logical trajectory from traditional Frankenstein, my first text, to film, to online creative writing communities, and ultimately to video games. And I just saw it as a culmination of different forms of writing and different forms of narrative creation. What do you think your students got out of the exercise? Like, what, what was the payoff? I'd intended for the game, for for Bioshock, to ultimately kind of reflect the different ways that words and communication are important to us, right, and mean things. Whether it's the word and the story, um, the the words that we absorb from the story, or the words that, like, spontaneously generate as we play through a story, right? That narratives and words function and develop in all of these different ways. And so that's why I began with Frankenstein, which is a traditional, simple, straightforward print book, to House of Leaves, which is more complicated, more media-based type of storytelling to film, right? It follows, and ultimately um, to Bioshock. Games can certainly be gimmicky when they're incorporated into a literature classroom. People might see it as an attempt to modernize or to make a field seem more relevant as less people read or less people see the importance of reading critically. But I also think it goes the other way around, that with games being this new medium or games as this new medium that people are fighting over territorially, that there's a, a necessity for us to show that games are just another addition to this type of human experience, right? And, and I, for, I mean, clearly because I study literature, I'm interested in stories and perspectives and how different people receive different narratives. I want people to see that same thing in video games. That's not to say that video games don't offer anything different or additional... Um, or, or maybe more, but that this one aspect of games shouldn't be ignored because games are like shiny and progressive and, and cool. When I first started working 
in the digital writing and research lab, I was part of a group that was supposed to do video game pedagogy. It was supposed to investigate games in the classroom, kind of general, um, a general goal. And the very first day we met, the group coordinator booted up Portal and put Portal on the, the projector, and we all took turns playing Portal. And these are all people, you know, mid-20-something graduate student types. And out of the five, five people who've decided that they want to spend a year doing video game research, only one of us knew how to navigate a first-person game. And for most of that hour, it was just fumbling into walls and falling off ledges. And so I think it was that moment where I realized that I could never teach a first-person shooter in any of my classes, that the barrier was just too high. Okay. For, Bioshock isn't a fairly typical game for me either. I don't really like first-person shooters. Um, I really don't like playing in first-person. I feel like it's disorienting. So it always takes time for me to adjust um, to that mode. And yes, when I did a poll of my students, about half were familiar with Bioshock in some way, and about half just didn't play these types of AAA video game titles. A skill barrier is maybe one problem with teaching video games, but it strikes me that that's actually just the beginning of the problems. I mean, how did your students talk about Bioshock? Was it like a movie? I mean, how did they, well, what kinds of things did they look at? One, I was hoping it would be sort of a tutorial um, for the students who were maybe shyer or more frustrated with, with the game itself. And two, it was an opportunity for students to dialogue as they played. So um, the people who played for the class would have to narrate their choices. Why did I pick this? Why did I make this path? And, and the people in the back of the classroom, uh, the people watching, could then contribute. So we split the discussion between strategic choices, like I chose this weapon, I chose this um, skill, and I decided to go this way. And the other half of the class was look at the rhetoric, right? Look at the choices that are offered in the game. What is it trying to push you to, to do or to think about the game? Um, even if you choose a different option, is it clear that there's this like moral valence um, that it wants you to understand? The tricky thing about games in the classroom is that there are reasons to teach them, right? Teaching Bioshock is a hip thing to do. Is and, it? Well, now well, I, I feel like the hipster in me is offended that no, it's so I mean, I don't mean I don't mean that it's hip in that way. I just mean teaching Bioshock, th th there is something like very like bleeding edge about that. You're going to pull in a lot of students who are like, oh, I've never done a video game in class. So there's a novelty element. There's an attractiveness to like featuring a video game as text. Sure. But if we just think about teaching – as like the management of resources, a lot of resources go into teaching a video game, right? Mm -hmm. You got to teach people how to play the video game. They're, they're spending more time on it at home. You're, you know, the in-class exercises sound fascinating, but also potentially like a place for inefficiency. And that isn't a, a criticism at all of your, right, of your right. lesson plan. It's just I would worry that the experience of like playing through chunks of a game would overwhelm my teaching practice. I chose specific scenes that I wanted them to play through, um, maybe 10-minute chunks, right? So the day before or the class before, I would ask students to volunteer, volunteer to send save files from this part of the game because ideally I'd already played through that part, so I knew which sections I would want to discuss for the next class. So I did compartmentalize the game into different scenes or scenarios that I wanted to go over. So 
there was a difficulty because we never treated it as this arc, really. Um, they were just clips of the game um, that we would discuss together. And ultimately, at the very end, um, the last week or so, we went over the, the whole plot, generally. But unlike a, a standard literary text, I think we actually spent less time on the overall plot and significance of the text, and we ended up spending more time on these snippets and moments that we played together. It's hard. I mean, I guess I guess it's hard to adjudicate like whether or not a student has read a book, right? And you know, like half of your students don't mm-hmm. read don't read the text usually, <laughs> right? right? Um, especially towards the end of the semester. Especially towards the end of the semester, and depending on the text. Uh, but it, to me, like, there was something extra about a game where it was like I didn't know if they had read. It. I mean, and then the other problem. This is maybe a whole separate conversation. Is just about the time investment. Because, like, Bioshock is, what, 15 hours long? Oh, well, to, I should say that I didn't assign the whole game. We okay. we stopped right after Fort Frolic. So okay. they made it past a good portion. And then and then for people who didn't want spoilers, they could walk outside of the class while I just, you know, kind of How gave the plot away. Walked? I think one person maybe put her hands over her ears while I kind of gave the twist ending away and we briefly discussed it. But that's what I meant. Like, there was no overarching discussion. We mostly focused on the significance of specific scenes. So so now I'm just curious, like, what did you do in your classroom then? Because I know you taught a video game this semester, and it sounds like your approach must have been drastically different from mine. So I've taught, I've taught video games, and I've taught lots of different games uh, in different classrooms. The first time I taught games, I was teaching a rhetoric class, and we played through the first level of Super Mario Brothers. And, you know, that takes about a minute or a little bit less maybe to play through that first level. And then afterwards we had a discussion about how we could talk about that game. So the – and then we we played through the game a second time about halfway through the class. And then we had another 45-minute discussion about – both about what had just happened in the playing of that game. But the more important discussion was how do we apply like the discipline of rhetoric to understanding the thing that we all just watched happen. Which is to say that I was using the game as a text, but the lesson that I wanted the students to draw for from it was sort of about how a discourse can emerge and how we can apply different analytic techniques to a text, right? People are using language of film, they're using language sure. of sound. They're just trying to grapple with the thing in front of them. And that's the only video game that I taught in that whole class. I tend not to treat games like literary texts. And that's not because I don't think of them as texts. Um, I just – in the classes that I've taught so far, because video games haven't been the central uh, focus of the class, I'm worried that it's not fair to ask my students to like grapple with it as a text. So instead, when I do use video games, I try to uh, use them to teach skills. So this semester, we spent a lot of time on Sam Barlow's Her, Her Story, and I had that game – be the centerpiece for my research unit. Now, the way her story works is when you start the game, you get a you get what appears to be a desktop from the late 90s, and on it, there's a single search engine. You can type words to search the transcript of police videos, and that's it. And it's up to the players to come up with search queries and to piece together these little 10-second to a minute-long videos into some kind of narrative to kind of solve the mystery. And it's tough. And it takes about three hours. And it's a perfect place to teach students how to do research. 
So I divide the students into groups and tell them to go to go crazy to see if they can solve the game over the course of a few class periods. And what needs to happen in order for that game to get, to reach some kind of resolution is the students need to learn how to take really good notes. They need to learn how to look for stuff on the internet and evaluate the credibility of sources. So they're learning all these really good, useful research skills while playing a game. Now, later on, I have a rule in my class, which is that you can write papers about any text that we've done, which includes her story. And I did get a lot of papers about her story. Um, but those papers, usually in the first drafts, would need work because the, the students had trouble sorting through exactly how to deal with her story. Right? They wanted to write me a paper about who the murderer was in her story and not a paper about like what her story was. Well, but isn't that what I'm trying to do with Bioshock? Not like, oh, the twist is, spoiler alert, Atlas is a bad guy, right? That there is more to the game than that final endpoint or beating a boss. Right. No. And so, again, like it's totally laudable. I'm just, especially when I, coming from the perspective of like entry-level writing courses, mm -hmm. I sometimes worry, like one of the reasons I'm reluctant to teach a game like Bioshock is just because of the overhead of the game. There's an interesting problem with like the game as text because it's so capacious. Like a game can include so much that, I mean... Okay, yeah. well, I think there are separate problems here. I think that it's just as complicated or, or in, in its own way, complicated to discuss film and literature in depth in an undergrad course, even if it's upper division, right, to, to really unpack all of these different details. And yes, it's incredibly difficult to do that with video games, but I think your issue is with people who teach or, or are involved in game criticism who don't seem to understand that there's more to teaching a game than just teaching the narrative. Like that, that simply judging it based off of narrative or, it's, or, or the type of storytelling it does basically encompasses the game itself. I think that's your problem. Well, I, I okay, so sure, right? I, like I have, a, I have a huge axe to grind against people who treat a game like any other narrative without mm -hmm. really thinking about what it means to be a game. But the problem that I, I, I guess what what I've run into here is like a more general anxiety about the game as a communicative art form, right? So okay, here's an interesting like problem. Um, the sequel to XCOM came out, XCOM Two, uh, and this is the reboot of like the late 90s strategy game. Uh, and XCOM 2 did something really interesting where as opposed to assuming that players won in XCOM 1, they assumed that players lost. And so XCOM 2 is this like the mm -hmm. aliens won, we're like fighting this underground war. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Here's what is really interesting. I was reading an interview by from its, one of the lead designers who said the reason they made that choice is because they have all the Steam data. And one of the things that all, all the data they got from Steam showed was most people lost the game. And more, more importantly, potentially, is most people didn't play it very long, an hour, like two hours. Okay, so now that's, that's intriguing to me because it seems like I, I bet that XCOM, I mean, XCOM is a very compelling playable game. And I, and I wonder if you started looking at the amount of hours, amount of time people are putting into games, right? How many people are playing Skyrim for three, four hours stopping? This kind of relates to, to your earlier post about not finishing games. Yeah. Now... <laughs> What interests me then is we are talking about like a form, like these are games. And there's a lot of stuff happening in Skyrim, hundreds of hours of materials in that game. But most people are just like playing for a few hours and stopping. So it seems to me like we have to address that. Because if most people, like if we think about Citizen Kane, 
and we were thinking about Citizen Kane as the movie that everybody saw the first half an hour of and left. Mm-hmm. Like that to me seems like a significant thing that we're looking at these really capacious, like a robust form that are also being experienced in these very like blinkered brief encounters. No, you're right. That's off the top of my head. That seems unique to the game genre, whether it's board games or video games that they can go on for extended periods of time and whether out of frustration or just lack of interest or other reasons, players can quit. Actually, the recent podcast with Michael Lutz ended on that note where um, Michael was just saying that what he wants from future video games is shorter games. Because as an adult, and I quote, as an adult with a life, you know, he has other responsibilities and he wants to play a game that can give him something complete or a good a good rounded point to stop at before he, you know, goes to bed. And then he, he can pick it up or it can already be done. But with a lot of games now that are so popular, you... You can't do that. You you have to be ready to invest that psychological, emotional, and like actual time. And this is a place where we think about cultural criticism of games. Things get really tricky because you can find something like – so, okay, so for instance, think about in terms of – as a work of art, how easy it might be to be misunderstood mm-hmm. if someone like picked one thing. I don't want to use a loaded term like cherry picking. but <laughs> But I think that games are – particularly ripe for partial reading because you have alternate endings and all you have kinds alter- of yeah because they are they're housing so much i mean planet side 2 was like 30 or 40 gigabytes i mean that's like an an impossible amount of data is like inside that game which just makes it to me it seems like it it's it's just asking to be misread misunderstood right so even if it's an mmo which by definition is open world and can continue as long as you want it to even if it's like that, you're saying that should be addressed as an issue. That someone who plays the game and maybe does the main quest and reaches the end point the first time around, finishes the game, that kind of criticism would be different from someone who's invested, I don't know, like three months into it. Or, you know, the, the game that like leaps to mind here is like Grand Theft Auto, which is such a huge world that if you want to find like sex and violence and be very upset about the game, you will find it. But that's what I think is awesome about video games. It leaves so much room for people to discuss with each other and to push each other's viewpoints and challenge them. But you're right that it feels like conversations stall or or just stop short of, of reaching new territory. It becomes harder. To, don't, you, don't you think it also makes the work harder to understand, right? So imagine a hypothetical like Skyrim-like open world game where you can invest 50 hours and just be playing like Stardew Valley and farming and fishing. Or you mm-hmm. can exe- invest 50 hours like killing peasants. Mm-hmm. Now, whether or not this game is pro-peasant, it becomes now a very vexed question. Because you can invest like a serious amount of time and the game will kind of like, you know, this is especially a problem with open world games. But I think it can more generally like be applied to games, uh, to other types of games as well. I think that this, the, the capaciousness of the game potentially like i feel like if endings don't match up with each other even if they're totally different endings but you feel that they don't reflect the same kind of developer or set of creators then i think it's just a messy game like i'm thinking of ex machina the movie i just watched it had one ending but i think a lot of the middle sections are super super messy and that opens it up to criticism because it couldn't decide what it was critiquing about humanity, artificial intelligence, 
uh, misogyny, race, like it, it just couldn't decide. And it seemed to waver back and forth. And, and in some ways you can consider those alternate endings or like alternate ways of understanding the text. But for me, that openness was a result of lax writing or compromised writing. Okay, so but that seems to suggest then that like the open world video game is like a disaster. Like, like I mean, I don't think it's a disaster, but I think that if you're creating an open world game, maybe you're more interested in a general experience or atmosphere. And so you're not as interested in leading the player to this one point, like this end goal. There is no end goal. I wouldn't even say there are multiple endings. I just think it's 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 a book that just kind of stops in the middle. And then you make it up as you go at the rest of it. And so, I mean, I think you can certainly say that an MMO is lazy or has inconsistent aesthetics or elements but I think just like looking at endings and whether endings make games difficult to analyze, I'm not really sure that's. I just, I mean, to me, it seems like there's this moment, usually it happens when I teach Frankenstein, where <laughs> I'll talk to students about how, like how many different ways you can read that book. And that's, that's usually this moment where for students, it's like, oh, this book can be read, can be understood different ways. And the text like keeps reading. I mean, I have books that I, I return to on like a yearly or every other year basis and the strength of the text is coming from like a new reading that I have now of it. And and so to me, like the multiplicity of a text is like one of the great strengths of it. But what, what I have an anxiety because I feel like there's a certain point where it fans out and it gets so big. But that's that's the point I agree with that I think multiple interpretations, multiplicity is is fine. Um because it's about uncovering these things you hadn't noticed before. But I think your anxiety and this like fanning out of endings isn't about uncovering things you haven't discovered. It's about someone throwing a bucket of trash at you and saying, this is a story. We Put are, these we pieces together. We're not calling Skyrim a bucket of trash. No, I wasn't even thinking of Skyrim. I'm calling Skyrim a bucket of trash. Okay. <laughs> but like, I mean, it's like that. Like, the trash can holds that story together, but inside you've got all these things that don't match. Like, they were put in there at different times of day by different people, and yet somehow we're supposed to accept this is a coherent thing just because there's a coherent frame. It strikes me, like, now that we're kind of having this, this discussion about, like, games and instruction and games and teaching, that so much of production in the game industry are things that we can't really talk about in a productive and detailed way in a classroom setting and even beyond the classroom setting, like in a critical setting. Like, I mean, when you read, if you were to assemble all the reviews, we're just going to keep picking on Skyrim. If, you're, if you <laughs> assemble all the Skyrim reviews and read them, they sound almost exactly the, the same. Oh, yeah. And they're really, yeah. they're interested in like the quote cinematic, the quote openness, the quote size, 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 right? It's like they have a rubric that they had to check off. Yeah. They, they, they check and off and all... now the rubric includes diversity. Yep. And if you read reviews of The Witcher, it's like you're reading the exact same review. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is a Skyrim review or the Oblivion review b before that. And it strikes me that like that the critical cl cliche of the glowing positive review about a triple A open world game speaks to the fact that like, these texts are garbage, or not? Not you know. Again, not that the trash. Yeah, it's yeah. It's well, it's hard because there are admirable things about both Skyrim and The Witcher, but 
in terms of understanding them, the only thing you can do is kind of spout a bunch of platitudes. I think the rubric issue is is important. Um, right. There's like this sense that we have to have a disconnected set of standards for every game, regardless of the context of the game or the context within the game. And, and that's why I pointed out, you know, diversity is another thing to check off, regardless of how the game implements it, why the game implements it, what it does or doesn't do with it. And so the, the rubric function explains why these game reviews kind of systematically, paragraph by paragraph, check off these same points. And in some ways, that kind of filters to game developers, right? That they feel that they just check off these points and, and they've got a solid game review. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The the development of open world games, I mean, this is like a kind of a separate conversation, but it's interesting because it relates, like when I think about what Skyrim is, I kind of have to think about Oblivion, which then makes me think about Morrowind, which then makes me think about Daggerfall, which then makes me think about Arena. Like they just kind of are building on each other and there is this general... Like, what does it mean to have a good open world game? Well, we probably need to include more of everything. Yeah, we just need to include what our predecessors checked off. Right. Yeah. So, like, we're going to include all those things. And, like, what if you could also make bread? Yeah. And, like, what if you could also ride a dragon? Or, you know, what? maybe there'll be sea monsters in the next one or whatever. But, like, it's if you think about, like, artistic production, that's a weird – like, if you apply that to any other realm, that's a weird way to think about – I mean, I think the what if question is a good starting place. Like, what if, what if Ophelia didn't die, right? And then you build something off of that. But but when the what if just becomes the new thing you add to a game, then yeah, it makes no sense. It's the banana in the trash can full of apples. It, it reminds me of that that moment in in an early Simpsons season where Homer is asked to design a car by his wealthy brother. Oh yeah, and he just like every feature, he just lists them all. And he's like, well, there's going to be a bubble. And, like, there's going to be a coffee maker. And the Homer mobile is nonsense. I mean, restraint is one of the hardest parts of artistic production. You have all of these ideas and all of these influences. And you just want to kind of mash them together because you think they're all so good. But it just means, like you said, right, all of those endings, all of those ideas that don't really help the player orient themselves in this world. And here's a place where in attention to the material limitations of a form uh, like matter quite a bit. Because for a long time in game design, what could fl- fit on the five and a half floppy? Mm-hmm. What could fit on the three and a half floppy? What could you put, like, do you need five floppies? Every disc that you added was going to cost more. Now we're at CDs, right? And the thing about Mist was the breakthrough, like everything Mist was offering is because they had a CD-ROM. And all, like, just about 700 megabytes they could put on a CD-ROM. And then the DVDs came around, and now they can play around with a gig or, a gig or so. And the Blu-ray discs. But because the distribution model, especially when it comes to PC games, or I mean, really, even console games, is direct distribution onto a hard drive, the game sizes are just ballooning because there, 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 are, no, like, there are no page count restrictions anymore. When we study Victorian texts, for instance, we always talk about the, how they're distributed, right, during their time period. Um, monthly, you know, pages of, of the, the book. That's why it had word counts, like, you know, why certain plots went certain ways, why there were cliffhangers, right? Because it was a monthly subscription type of deal. But we don't really discuss games in that from that angle, right? The design of games because the engine was better or worse, right? Like what developers are capable of doing from the structural standpoint, which we do, like we don't spend like, I don't know, weeks talking about it, 
perhaps in an undergrad class about print culture, but we do spend time acknowledging that part of the writing is influenced by how that writing was going to be distributed by the publisher. And maybe that's a way forward to think about, like, if we were to imagine a critical discourse around games and a way of understanding games, maybe that's a way of dealing with them, to think about not so much the text of the game, which is something that you would get to, mm-hmm. but to put that in conversation with the formal constraints. How many buttons are on this controller? How big is the storage device that's going to hold the game? I mean, and on a basic level, what are we capable of programming right now, right, right. into a game?